In Queensland, our pilots are the people who keep our fleet of 20 aircraft flying across nine bases, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They've all taken different career paths before coming to the RFDS. Some grew up flying in the bush, some have flown for airlines. Others came to us after receiving the highest training the Royal Australian Air Force had to offer. And some even had their pilot's licence before their driver's licence. In this series, you'll hear their stories and what it's like to fly for the Royal Flying Doctor Service Queensland section. I'm Edwina Stott and this is the RFDS Queensland section podcast. Uh, full name is David Kennington Keevy, and I'm the senior vice pilot in Mount Isa. David started his career on a property in the Gulf country of northwest Queensland, mustering cattle. His varied career in aviation has also seen him work as a Coast Watch pilot on Thursday Island, and later spent 20 years flying long haul for Qantas, and also spending some time with Air Vanuatu. He's now the senior base pilot in Mount Isa for the RFDS Queensland section. I sat down with David in between flights and began by asking him how he first became interested in aviation. Yeah, it's sort of one of those things that I sort of was going to join the military and then decided that wasn't for me because you had to get up early in the morning and uh, iron your clothes and that's not really my thing. At the end of year 11, we had to get up and say, listen, what we wanted to do. And I actually got up and said I wanted to be an air traffic controller. And my mother said, well, why do you want to do that? And I said, well, because I quite like aeroplanes. And she said, well, why don't you go and learn to fly one? I thought, oh... Okay, yeah, why not? All right, I didn't think about that. So uh, because it was, it, it was sort of very expensive and you know, in those days, and uh, well, still is, it's even more expensive now. But my mum sort of said, "Listen, she would be happy to, to help me as long as I, long as I, you know, paid her back over when I started earning some money, and she'd be happy to put me through flying school." So it must have been a real light bulb moment for you realizing that actually it's something that you'd love to do. Yeah, yeah. It was just one of those moments that I'd realised that I actually sort of this was actually what I like doing, what I love doing. I've got to that point in time, I was sort of struggling a little bit to know exactly what I wanted to do. And I thought that's what, you know, I thought air traffic control would be one of those paths that I would be interested in. But it wasn't until I actually started flying, I thought, actually, this is pretty good. And I realised that because I, I knew I was never going to be really suited for a nine to five job. So lucky that I sort of was able to get into flying because it's definitely not nine to five. So what was your first job in aviation? My first real job in flying was working for a pastoral company for a cattle station north of Mount Isa, up near Burketown, a place called Augustus Downs. That was my first job and I spent, I think it was nine months there cattle mustering in a sort of a little, a little Cessna. Once I sort of completed there, I sort of met a few people in Mount Isa. So I ended up started flying out of Mount Isa, doing charter work and also working for a couple of pastoral companies out of here, doing charter companies and mail runs. And so what's it like when you're working for a pastoral company? You say you're mustering. What kind of work is involved in that and what, what's the flying like? The flying was very, um, very demanding. I had to get a, a, what they call a low-level endorsement and a mustering endorsement. So I would spend most of the day flying between you know, 10 and 50 feet, sort of rounding up cattle. They didn't used to use helicopters much in those days, the, the little helicopters that only just started coming out. So they, the aeroplanes were, were very much heavily used. Wow. And was it very exciting? I assume if you're flying 10 to 50 feet off the ground, it, it's got to be an adrenaline rush, you know, even if you, for the most experienced pilot, that must be quite something. It was 
sort of well and truly something that you'd, I'd never thought I'd ever get to do and, and sort of do it do day in, day out. So, yeah, it's something that I, I don't know whether they would allow us actually to do it now. I think the laws sort of prohibit light aircraft from doing that. I'm not 100% sure. I just I don't think light aircraft are used for cattle mustering all that much now. So it's mostly done by, I think it's about you know, nearly 90% of it's done by helicopters. And I'm certainly in around the Mount Isa area. Yeah, I think it's mostly done by helicopters now. There must have been such a sense of camaraderie working so remotely. Did you enjoy that aspect of the work? I did, yeah. It was, it was, it was very remote those days. You know, there was no satellite communications. There was no telephones. Everything was done via high-frequency radio. So I'd have to book the call a month in advance to talk to my mum. So I'd have to write her a letter to say, listen, mum, be next to the phone at this time, and I've booked a call in. And so you would sit in the station master's office or the, the head stockman's office next to the telephone, which was essentially just a party line onto a, you know, connected up to a high-frequency radio, and the, and the operator would come up and say, listen, you know, Augustus Downs, you're next. Be ready to go. And so, so they would hook the call through, through the radio, into, their, into, the, into the sort of the, you know, the telegraph station that was here or the telephone station that was in Mount Isa, and they'd patch the phone, phone call to mum, and I'd have to explain to mum that she couldn't talk the same time as I did, otherwise we'd cut each other out. And uh, that took a while to get used to. And, uh, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. You, you, you were allocated, you would book in five minutes, and so you, you'd talk for your five minutes and say, Mum, I've got to go, and that would be the end of it. Given that this was your first job at 19 years of age, it must have taken some time to get used to this style of flying. When I first started the low flying, it was quite a, you know, sort of quite a challenge, and we never used to have radio... I never had radio communications with the stockmen on the grounds. So what we would do is I'd roll up... I'd write a note to the guys where I knew that where I thought the, you know, where the cattle were and which way they had to to walk on their horses to go towards the cattle. So the trick was I had to try and put the note. I'd write the note, roll it up, put it in a uh, in a, into a into a tobacco tin, and then the trick was that I had to try and drop it quite close, and they used to get cranky with me if they had to walk too far to go and get my note that I dropped out of the aeroplane, or if I actually hit them with it, which I actually used to try to do. So. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so that sounds like it was a real baptism of fire. What was your next job after that? Next job after that was move. Um, I had some friends down in Mount Isa, and they sort of said, "Well, you know." And the other, the problem with the station was it was it was you were very much cut off. All the roads were dirt at those days, so any rain at all, you'd be cut off for, for weeks at a time. And it was just very remote. There was no, you know, there was nothing to do at night. The you know, the power would be off at you know seven or eight o'clock for the rest of the station. That you know the main quarters would be kept powered, but the rest of the station, the power would go off. So there wasn't a great deal to do. So and it did get a bit, you know, you did get sort of end up sort of feeling a little bit lonely. But yeah, so eventually the sort of you know the friends of mine convinced me to come down, and I sort of started doing some part-time work with some of the pastoral companies, doing mail runs, and also doing some part-time charter work for some of the local companies here. And then I had to go back to Sydney to go and do my what they call their in those days used to call them the senior subjects. It's it's now called the ATPL now, which is basically the, the subjects that you needed to get into the airlines, and also do my my instrument rating or yeah, so you could fly through clouds. So I went back down to Sydney to do those. And while I was down there, the job came up as a permanent position at, uh, with Air Mount Isa, which was a local charter company at that stage, and I applied for that and, and got that job. So once I finished my senior subjects, I came back up here and, and started working for them full-time. So when you were back in Sydney after living and working in such a remote location for so long, what did you notice about being back in the city? It must have been quite overwhelming. The traffic and that you could actually meet girls because obviously there were no girls on the station. There was only the governess and the, uh, the cook were the only two girls on the station. So that was the other thing. And uh, um, so, yeah, so you actually got to meet some talk to, and talk to some girls. So that was a bit, that, that was very different for me. <laughs> very exciting, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs>
So you got your instrument rating and your ATPL, and then you said you got a gel, but Air Mount Acer, is that right? So I worked for them for another two years, I think, 18 months, two years. And during that period of time, I started to apply to the airlines. And I'd written to Qantas, I'd written to ANSET and also to Australian Airlines, or TAA in those days. And I got an interview with ANSET Airlines, and there was a, at the time, they'd just taken over another airline called East West. And they said, oh, you know, when can you start? And I said, oh, straight away. And they said, oh, how many hours do you have? And I said, oh, I've just got over a thousand hours. And they said, oh, congratulations, we can offer you a job as a Coast Watch pilot out of Thursday Island, which wasn't really what I wanted. I wanted to get an airline job out of, out of a city. But anyway, that's, that's what they offered me. So that's what I took. So I ended up in Thursday Island flying Coast Watch. Because I had low level experience, it was flying around at 100 feet. It's changed a bit now that you do more out at sea work now, where it's, when I was doing it, it was basically along the coast. We used to look for what they used to call footprints in the sand. And so we were just looking for any people had, who'd come into Australia or try to come ashore illegally and we'd take pictures of what we thought were illegal vessels or illegal fishing vessels and going on and, and once again in those days it wasn't there was no internet or anything else along those lines so we used to take the photographs put the film into an envelope we send that down to Canberra so they could develop it and we used to type all our reports on a telex machine so that would be also they had a sort of an abbreviated form of like shorthand that we would type up our reports in and they would all be telexed off to Canberra and yeah, and that's what we. So I did. I did that for. I did that for eight months. I think it was a really interesting job. I loved it. It was. A, it was a lot of fun flying. The the airplanes were very well set up compared to what I was used to. They had air conditioning and you know, a long range navigation system. Yeah, it's still. It was still the days before GPS. So it was a, a funny sort of a system that we used. Um, it used the signals from the Americans that the Americans used to transmit to their submarines, and it used the signals from those to give you a location. So it was quite an interesting system. So, uh, but it had its failings. It would have. It would always. When you really needed it most, that's when it would fall over. You'd be out at sea, sort of in the middle of the sea, you'd have no sort of landmarks to do any sort of navigation from at all. Uh, and this is when that, this system was meant to work at its best and you'd look down and look at it and go, no, it's gone into what they used to call DR mode or dead reckoning mode, which means it was guessing as well. So, so you'd go, oh, okay, great. Yeah, I, well, I really do need you. You're now not working. So was this the first time in your career you'd had to navigate in this way? I remember one of the jobs I used to do when I was out of Mount Isa, once again, it was to do with the, the TB eradication program. We would take off out of Mount Isa at two o'clock in the morning and then we would fly for three hours, in the, obviously at dark, and, and then we were expected to land at the station when, at first light. But the only problem was, you know, for th- literally two and a half hours, you'd be just be navigating by what they call, you know, dead reckoning. There'd be no lights on, all the stations had had their lights switched off, so you'd just be navigating completely blind and then the sun would come up and the veterinarian sitting in the back of the aeroplane would wake up and go, where are we? And I go, well, listen, I don't know either. But I don't know. I've got no idea where we are. I think we're somewhere here. Get your head out the window and we'll start to try to work out where we are. So you'd fly around for half an hour trying to work out where you were and then eventually you'd find yourself and you'd, so you'd, you'd find a river and you'd sort of fly down the river and find a station and go, yep, that's, the one we, that's not the one we're looking for, but at least we now know where we are and I'll fly off to the station where we're meant to be. That's remarkable. Did you get quite good at noticing those characteristics of the land and uh, navigating by eye. You did, you did. You got to recognise the difference between red soil and the black soil. Um, the biggest trick was not to convince yourself where you were. You had to sort of allow the pieces to come together. So that was the real, that was the real art of it, was to, to not to allow yourself to be convinced of or to talk yourself into that you were in a particular place. You just had to let the pieces come together and try and work it out from there. So after the job on Thursday Island, what did you do then? I spent 20 years with Qantas, so this is back when they were still a government airline and when I first joined I was on the 767 and then I moved on to the 747 from there. 
I was absolutely thrilled to get in, but I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, what have I done? Have I bitten off more than I can chew? And my mother pulled me aside, and you know, cause I, when I told my mum, oh, I've, I've, I've gotten into Qantas, you know, she was sort of initially, she was very thrilled, and she went, then she looked at me and she said, do you reckon you can do it? I went, oh, thanks, mum. Yeah. <laughs> so you've gotten the job, and I imagine then there is a rigorous training process, was there? There was. There was three months before you even got to see an aeroplane. Qantas in those days would put you in and, and completely re-educate you on how things were done according to the world of Qantas. They just completely re-educated us. They, they took us right back to basics and then, as I said, we spent three months even before we started our, uh, what they used to, what they call our type training. So, so there was another two months of type training after then. So it was nearly five months before I was actually cleared to the line. That was, and that was just as a second officer. Certainly the initial years in Qantas were just brilliant. It was a, a very much a different airline to what it is now. It, you would take off, fly somewhere and get off and you'd have two or three days off. And then you'd do that again and do that again. And, you know, it was very much a easy social lifestyle that we used to live. None of the trips were all that taxing. We'd almost very rarely, we would do two sectors in a day. Most of the time it was just one sector get off. Um, as time progressed and as they, you know, they got privatised and became more of a commercial sort of an operation and we sort of went from there. So... After the seven, as I said, after the seven six seven, I then went to the seven four seven, and then went uh, and took my command on the seven three seven, which was uh, short haul. What was a typical route like for you during those days at Qantas? Typical day would be we'd, we'd fly probably uh, Cairns to Honolulu. We used to that was the seven six seven was doing that at one point in time. Go Cairns to Honolulu, get off. We'd have two days in Honolulu, and then we would do. This was one of our rare days. We would do Honolulu, Los Angeles, and we'd spend about three hours on the ground in Los Angeles, and then Los Angeles to San Francisco. We would then spend three days on the ground in San Francisco, and then we'd do the reverse. It was very relaxing and yeah, not very taxing at all. It certainly sounds like that type of flying is the dream. <laughs> But did you miss anything about your previous jobs while you were flying with Qantas? You missed the hands-on flying a little bit more, so much because we weren't doing all that many sectors, so you did miss the hands-on flying a little bit. That's, that was sort of the part that we, you, know, you sort of end up missing the most, but no, you, you didn't miss the small aircraft and the, the things breaking down and, and working in the middle of nowhere, so no, it was, um, it was very cushy. So why did you eventually leave Qantas? When I first became a captain on the 737, I, I loved it. It was just brilliant. You did a lot of flying and uh, you did a lot of sectors. But I sort of came to realise that, that it was... That they were always short of crew. Um, he just My wife, who's she's, she's a doctor, she's working up here with me here in Mount Isa. We were just never seeing each other. My rosters were very unstable and we just didn't have a life. I'd sort of come home, she'd go to work and then you know, she'd work 10 or 12 hours and you know, come home, she'd be tired and we virtually wouldn't see each other. Then, you know, two days later or a day later, I'd be off back at work for another three or four day trip. And we, we just weren't seeing each other. And we were both just getting worn out by it. So eventually we sort of, you know, we got to the point where we sort of looked at each other and went and said, well, there's more to life than this. And we've got to get back to uh, a bit more of a balanced life. So she loved her job. But by that stage, I'd sort of fallen out of love with Qantas a, a, a bit. And so we decided that we'd go off and do something a little bit more different. So during that period of time, I took a, I took a lot of long service leave. And whilst I was away on long service leave, my manager from Qantas rang me up and said, we've got this job going in Air Vanuatu. They're, they're swapping from their, their old 737 to a newer 737 and they need someone to help cover, their, cover them while their pilots are off doing some training. Would you like to go and sun yourself in a tropical island for a month while they do that? And I said, thank you very much. I'd love to do it. So when I went over there, I just had a ball. I loved it. Eventually, my wife and I decided that we would have a bit of a change in our, in our path and I resigned from Qantas and joined Air Vanuatu. I worked there for three and a half years and absolutely loved it. 
it was an absolute ball. You knew everybody and everybody knew you, so it was just a, it was a great little organisation, very similar to what we have up here in Mount Isa, just a you know, very small organisation, everybody knows each other and, and uh, it was brilliant. So how did you come to fly for the RFDS? I then took some more time off and uh, that's when the wife and I sort of discovered that, you know, well, we sort of started looking at each other going, well, yeah, there's, there's, uh, she'd been working in the same job for 18 years where she was and, you know, she was sort of thinking it was time to do something a little bit different and, and I sort of felt that, you know, we hadn't done anything together for quite some time. It, we'd also always been, either, either, you know, either was either working for Qantas and being away or being at home and but we just weren't, we hadn't sort of done anything together for a while. So we started looking at various options about what we could do and I sort of suggested that, you know, I knew that the uh, RFTS Queensland section was struggling to get pilots, um, certainly experienced pilots and certainly pilots that were, would be willing and game to go out to, to Mount Isa. So I, I had a chat to my wife about what she thought about that idea and she initially she told me I was an idiot, but I managed to convince her to, to at least to ring the RFDS and see if they had any jobs that she could do. And so she ended up speaking to, to Don Bowley in, up here and he sort of suggested that, no, he, she, her, her sort of qualifications, she's, she's an anaesthetist, so she said her qualifications is probably a little bit too specialised for them, but she could talk to the local hospital and, and see if they had a position. So which she did, she rang up the local hospital here in Mount Isa and started chatting to the, to the, the head of anaesthetics department here and sort of chatting away. And I think he just about fell off his chair when she said, oh, are you looking for anybody? And he sort of finished the conversation and he said, well, she said, well, well, have you got any jobs going? And he said, yes, would you like my job? I'm, I'm about to retire. So uh, that's how it worked out. Wow. And what did you think about flying for the RFDS in terms of um, what kind of thing you expected to be doing and what you might like about the job? I knew it was going to be very hard for me. The whole thing was quite daunting because I'd never flown turboprops before. I hadn't flown single pilot IFR, what they call single pilot I or instrument flight rules for, for close to 30 years. So I knew the job itself would be just very, very different to what I was used to. So that was sort of very daunting. But the people here are just fabulous. You know, there's just some really lovely people that, and they just want to help. So was it very different to the flying you used to when you started flying for the RFDS? The whole thing was just completely different. It took me a long while to get used to just doing everything by myself and not having a, you know, a co-pilot to help me along and the aircraft was itself was quite different so it was the whole thing was and I hadn't flown for for over 12 months and that was the other hard part there's like you know I was, I was quite rusty so yeah the whole experience was a very very steep learning curve for me but this is the thing with the RFDS and being an RFDS pilot is that uh, when you're in a, an airline or a you know, place like Qantas everything is just given to you your, your flight plan is given to you your all, everything is checked for you the engineers check all the aircraft for you you just walk on board and go flying Whereas the RFDS is, you know, you check the aircraft, you do all the flight planning, you help load the patients, you help unload the patients when you get to wherever you're going with the patient on board. You just don't sit there and do your paperwork and start planning your next leg. It's You get out and you help the, help the flight nurse and the doctor get the patient off, put them in the ambulance or get the patient on board and, and put them inside the aircraft. And then you can start your, your other job, you know, your flying job from there once that's been done. So it's a, it's a very different way of doing it. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a real eye-opener to how much work they are, the the pilots and the flight nurses and the doctors do. It took a while to adjust to, but then you sort of you just get a real sense of fulfilment from it. In the airline world, you, you, a lot of time you don't even see your passengers, whereas in the flying doctors, you're going out and you, you're rescuing people, and they're you know, they're so happy to see you, they're so thankful for your you know that you're trying to help them. So it's just a completely different world. Yeah, completely different job. Are there any times you've flown somebody or you know been sent out to an accident or a situation which have really stood out in your memory as 
remarkable trips or left a mark on you? One of the ones I, I remember most was that it was just myself and a flight nurse and we'd taken off out of Mount Isa going to Mornington Island in the morning and we'd literally only gotten to top of climb when the satellite phone went off and yeah, the, the flight nurse answers that and, she, and she, she called me up and said, can we go to Augustus Downs? I said, yes, of course we can. And she, I said, oh, what's there? And she said, a guy's looks like he may have severed his finger or fingers being caught in a cattle crush. And how long are we going to be there? And I said, oh, hang on a minute, we'll be there in, we'll be there in uh, 15, 20 minutes. And she said, oh, OK, that quick. And I said, yeah, yeah, we, we, yeah it's, just, it's just... So I literally just called, you know, air traffic control on the radio and said, I know I've only just gotten to top of climb, but I'd now like to divert to, to Augustus Downs. And, and I, that's one thing about up here, the air traffic control is very helpful. And they said, yep, where you go. So we landed at Augustus Downs, which I hadn't been to in over 35 years. And this guy came out with his hand all in a, in a sort of very rough bandage and sort of the flight nurse looked at it and said, we're going to have to take him to Townsville. Can we do that? And I said, yes, of course. I said, well, give me two minutes. I looked at it quickly. I, I, I had a rough idea. I knew we could get there. But uh, had a look at our little uh, iPad that we, we have with us to make sure that yeah, we could do it. And I said, yep, we can do that. So instead of going to Mornington Island, we ended up in Townsville, going via Augustus down. So we took this guy there and he sort of, we're hoping we could save his fingers. Unfortunately, they couldn't. But about a week later, we got this lovely bundle of a six-pack of beer and, and some chocolates from him that he was just so grateful that we were able to get him. And you know, we picked him up so quickly and, and took him to Townsville you know, where there was a possibility that, we, that they could save his fingers, but just unfortunately, they were, they were too badly damaged. That's sort of what's special about the, about the flying doctors is that, that, you know, that we are out here for the bush. And when you do go and pick someone up from a cattle station that is quite badly injured, that, you know, how appreciative of that, that they are. Hmm. You've had such a wide and varied career in aviation. I mean, you've pretty much done every job when it comes to being a pilot. But what is it that stands out for flying for the RFDS that makes it so different and so rewarding? I mean, I know you have to do a lot more as a pilot for the RFDS, but what is it that you think makes it so special? You know that you are flying for a very well-respected and world-renowned organisation. And as I said, there are some really, really amazing people that work for the RFDS Queensland section. And you feel so very proud to work with them and, you know, sort of all... And such an organisation with such history um, that it is such an incredible honour to to do that. You know, you sort of see where you... Where you, if you go along to a, uh, a fundraising event or you're out at some of the race meetings and, and that sort of stuff, or the, or the camp drafts, and they, you know, they've got the, the, the RFDS fundraising going on, and, and people come up to you and, and say, you know, and they tell you their, their stories about when they've been picked up by the RFDS, and, and you just feel so proud of being a part of that organisation. Yeah. And working, as you said in your earlier career, you know, that first job you learned those enormously, you know, valuable skills of flying at that low level, then you got into the fabulous navigational skills. What do you think the RFDS has taught you in that regard? Yeah, you, you get a bit sort of bit lazy in the airline world because you simply go from instrument landing system on a long runway, you know, with air traffic control to instrument landing system on a long runway with air traffic control with very highly automated aircraft. You can get a little bit lazy, whereas I suppose the RFDS is sort of, they take your flying skills and they really do ramp them up. They really do take you to a very high level of expertise in your in your hand flying skills you go out to a cattle station or you go out to some of these remote airstrips and there's there's nothing there there's there's no navigation aids or anything else along those lines and the, and the runways can be quite basic so you have to be you have to be very accurate with your flying and very controlled and also be able to make a decision well if it's not quite working out i'll stop doing what i'm doing and, and go around and, and try it all again now i know this is a big question and it's hard to compete with three days in hawaii 
But would you say that working for the RFDS has been your favourite job during your career? Certainly different ends of the spectrum. It is certainly different ends of the spectrum. So uh, sunning yourself on a beach in Hawaii compared to you know, 45 degree heated Mount Isa, but you don't get the reward that you, you know, you just don't get the rewards from your flying that you do here. Yeah, it's just, it's just a, a very special place to work for and uh, just a, such a you know, very special organisation that uh, you do get some, you know, a lot of satisfaction from that, which you, you don't get in the airline world. The airline world is, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, yes, you are working for a, you know, a wonderful company like Qantas, but, but still, it's still not the same. And it, I think that's where you sort of deep down inside, you sort of, I'll, I'll look back at, and when I do retire, I'll look back at my career and probably I'll look upon this, this stage of my flying career the most fondly. That was Mount Isa senior base pilot, David Keevey. David is just one of the pilots I've spoken to for this special podcast series for the RFDS Queensland section. So if you enjoyed that one, make sure you take a listen to the other pilot stories in our feed too. This was the RFDS Queensland section podcast. I'm Edwina Stott. Thanks for listening and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Catch you next time.